BBCC episode 32, my realization of the day. Why in the world wouldn't the Colons choose to live in Alaska instead of Forks, Washington? I mean, yeah, sure, Forks has moodier teens and werewolves running around, but it's just not very economical when you think about it. But we will save Twilight talk for another day. We're talking um, some real vampires here today on the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Hello, hello. It is your boy, Devon Taylor, a.k.a. underscore Daddy Disco on Twitter and Instagram, and this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. It is a podcast where we talk about the subgenres within horror films and, you know, dig nice and deep, and we get real stoned while we're doing it. And I'm usually joined by a guest or two, which is, of course, the case today. We are talking, um, this is week two of our cold hearted December here on the Blade Blunt Cinema Club where we're talking uh, not only holiday horror films but just films that are cold in general and that's what we're getting into today with a couple vampire flicks and joining me who I have waiting in the wings already is a special guest a part of the Something Ghoulish fam um, and they brought a vampire movie 30 Days a Night with them, which I have not seen, and then we will also be talking, let the right one in, so I welcome to the show, Jesse Barabic. Hi, hey, thanks for having me on. Not a problem, and thank you for coming on, I'm so glad that you responded whenever I made the uh, call for December guests here on the uh, Blade Blunt Cinema Club, so super happy to have you on, and you are coming from the East Coast right now, correct? Yeah, I'm in New York City, which is getting pretty cold already, you know, in and of itself. So it's an apropos temperature for this conversation we're going to have for te- today. Oh, yeah, it, it fits in, like, absolutely perfectly. Um, you know, here, me here in L.A., I you know, don't exactly get the same cold treatment. I mean, it is gloomy today. I do get overcast, which is nice. Um, but I am not getting, um, you know, the the cold that I really like. It's like in the 50s, but it is overcast, so I'll take it. I mean, you're. I would consider yourself lucky because, man, around this time, I, I'm born and raised in New York City, right? Around this time of year, we're getting into the beginning of December, like, New Yorkers are hunkering down, we're getting ready for, like, the brutal cold, the snow storms and stuff, like, there's a collective misery there in uh, dealing with New York winters. Yeah, it's, like, one of the things that, like, kept me from, like, I could never <laughs> live in New York. Uh, I love visiting. I came in October last year, and, I mean, it was definitely nice and chilly and wet. Um, and, oh and, sure sure yeah yeah so um but and, and it's the same reason like because i love chicago too but like chicago winters also because like i'm from the midwest so i mean it, i'm not you know i'm not the spoiled la person that doesn't get cold weather i grew up in it you know still oh but. see there you go yeah yeah where in the midwest i'm from st louis 
St. Louis. They have some pretty rough winters there, I've heard. Yeah, they they're really they're cold and then they're really wet because, you know, it's really humid in St. Louis. So right. we get like just these like really like cold sloshy winters. We don't really get like the pretty snow and stuff like that, you know. Gosh. Yeah, but, you know, speaking of pretty snow, we definitely get lots of pretty snow in the movies that we're talking about today. But before we get into we those, do. But before we get into those, we're going to get to know our guest a little bit and like this is for real actually getting to know cuz I think you're the the guest I've had on the show so far that I've actually like known the least. Like you're a very new Twitter friend. Um so I am in, very intrigued to hear a little bit on uh, your horror background, just, um, you know, how you got into horror and then what you're doing with horror now. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I was just thinking the same thing when I was getting ready for the podcast uh, earlier today. I was like, you know, I don't know this guy very well. Like, we just started following each other on Twitter. And uh, that's always cool. I love meeting new friends in the community. So, um, so like, uh, like you said, my name is Jesse Barbrick. Uh, I've been a horror fan for as long as I can remember. I know that's an answer a lot of people give, but like literally one of the first movies I ever watched was the, uh, 1956 Godzilla King of the Monsters with Raymond Burr. And I was two years old when I watched that. So that was like one of the, my first introductions to genre film. Right. And, uh, from there I would watch like the universal horrors and stuff like that. Vincent Price was a big favorite of mine growing up. Um, uh, and also, you know, literature came with that as well. You know, reading Stephen King and Edgar Allan Poe it was a proper, like gothic little horror kid. You know, I worried my mother a lot. <laughs> um, man, you got so like, you got started even way younger than most other people. I mean, two, that is two, two, two years old. This, the funny story behind that was, um, not to, you know, uh, go too off topic, but, uh, uh, so I was watching, my father had noticed me watching the old 77 Godzilla cartoon, you know, the Hanna-Barbera mm. one. Okay. He had noticed me watching those reruns on Cartoon Network. And it was the only thing that the that could get me to shut up. I was a noisy, whiny, bratty fucking baby. And just watching Godzilla cartoons was the only thing getting me shut up. So he said, well, you know what? I see here that the Raymond Burr movie's coming on. I'm going to throw it on and see what how that works. And I shut up for the hour and a half runtime of the film. So that was it. That was enough for my parents. I was like, it, it gets him to shut up. He likes Bella Lugosi. He likes Godzilla. Fuck it. Here. <laughs> Yeah. So they kind of fed into my obsession that way. <laughs> I mean, I not everyone is fortunate, you know, to have the the supportive horror uh, parents like that. You know, I love that. You know, they didn't see it as you know anything like it was going to traumatize you or it was going to do something. And I obviously like had quite the opposite. You were already a monster, so they were like, "Oh, oh no, I, this I, helps." <laughs> it, this helps exactly. You know, I was also fortunate in that, like my dad grew up a monster kid himself you know he loved the boris karloff frankenstein growing up and he tells me you know my favorite stories he always tells is um going to he him going to his grandmother's house as a child for sunday dinner big deal in italian households sunday dinner Mm -hmm. and what they would play on tv was always uh, a monster movie typically a godzilla movie followed by an abdomen costello movie and stuff so he was already he'd liked 
this kind of stuff, this kind of B-movie fare already. So he was cool with showing it to me. Um, but yeah, so childhood spent, I would like bring Godzilla toys with me to school and stuff like that. Uh, and then I became like a super horror snob in high school. Like I was really into the art of horror. <laughs> then I was trying to define myself as an intellectual high schooler. You were the influencer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, and then from that, you know, it, it just stuck with me. And then in college, at, um, after I got my uh, bachelor's, that's when I really became uh, focused on actually writing film criticism and writing horror film criticism specifically. And uh, that's the journey I've been on uh, um, for a while now. That's what brought me to Something Ghoulish, where I joined uh, early last year. And, um, you know, releasing uh, editorials and stuff. And now I'm on the I'm an actual editor there. I'm their horror film editor at Something Ghoulish. And um, I've also written written for zines such as Drive and Asylum, things of that nature. And the biggest thing was moving into actual film curation, you know, before the pandemic hit, before COVID became a thing here in America. I used to work at the Museum of the Moving Image, and that's where I developed this film series called Disreputable Cinema, which was dedicated to cult and horror films. And every month we'd show a movie for a, a movie in the museum. There was two theaters for a movie going public, and we'd present old films. And uh, that's what I would do. I would get on stage, I would introduce the film, talk about it a little bit, and then sit in the crowd with everybody else and watch it. You know, we showed. Texas Chainsaw Massacre on 35mm one time, which was a great show. Um, Evil Dead. We showed some Godzilla movies. So that was like my crowning achievement as a horror fan to actually be kind of a horror host. You know, I kind of, I, I grew up really liking Joe Bob Briggs on Monster Vision. So this was a big feather in my cap, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. That is just like, it. it that's like the dream. Like you said, it, it's. Oh, there's my mic. Oh, man. I had, like, some weird stuff going on. Apologies to the audience. My uh, audio might be a little scrambled for that little beginning. But anyways, I figured it out now. Um, That <laughs> is, like, just so cool. Like, that's something I've been wanting to... I want to I wanna get more into, like, before, you yeah. know, everything happened. I wasn't focusing as much on, like, uh, doing horror community things. And I hadn't started the podcast yet. Um, but I was like trying to figure out ways I was like I want to do like the whole like yeah like hosting the screenings and like kind of doing the whole pre-show and watching and kind of having a discussion afterwards so like that's something yeah. I definitely want to because like as like as much as you'd think there would be a lot of those out here in LA there's not as many as you would like expect like um, really I am I am actually surprised by that I mean there's all there's always like you know weird interesting um like you know film related activities going on but mm -hmm. like there's not as much of like just like that kind of like classic experience of um of like like you said like getting to do like the pre-show and like all that stuff like they usually only do stuff if it's like a special event maybe for oh. for like a premiere or like some sort of thing like that but like just like as far as like on a regular basis there's there's not as many or at least not as many that i can find maybe maybe i'm just not looking hard enough but or i just need to get on and start one of my own 
I was going to say, you can corner the market on this, man. I mean, it's, I'll tell you, it's very gratifying as a film fan to, to be able to talk with people. Yeah, that was always my favorite thing, talking with people as they left the theater and us discussing how much they loved the film, especially if they had never seen it before. The crazy thing, when we showed Evil Dead in 35mm, we had a guy show up who brought his 10-year-old son, <laughs> right? Right, and I was like, "This is a cool dad, man." And we, it was damn right, right. And but a woman complained. A woman come out. She was like, "Yo, there's a kid in this theater watching Evil Dead." Um, as they're coming out, the guy comes up to me and he's like, "Yo, I just want to thank you so much for putting this on. My kids never seen Evil Dead." And this kid comes running out of the theater, a grin as wide as his face, you know, ear to ear. And he had such a great time. This was his first time ever seeing Evil Dead, ever seeing anything like Evil Dead. And he was just on top of the world. And I was like, that's exactly why I wanted to do this. You know, so yeah. corner the market on it, man. You might find, you might introduce Evil Dead to a, a, a bunch of people out there in L.A., maybe even a father and a son. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that is like the coolest because oh, it's like one bitch mind your business like i hate people exactly that just, like, <laughs> that just like oh my god like what are they doing and it's just like obviously their parents here with them and like this is like they're having an experience why are you trying to ruin their experience and but uh, she she was a total karen like a stereotypical like she had the haircut and everything oh man oh man <laughs> we see them everywhere it's funny it's like they've always been there you know but now always um but yeah that's uh that's such a that's such a cool thing and uh, yeah, I would definitely love to get into that out here. And then also, I just have to shout out like the the way that I know you're a true New Yorker is from the East Coasters that I've had on the podcast. Uh, you and um, and Anya, uh, the way you guys say horror just like makes my heart warm. Like the horror host, the horror host, yeah, horror, horror host, yeah. That's born and bred, baby. Uh, I love it. I love it. So before we um, get into our two main movies, um, because we're talking some cold vampire movies, but we are uh, talking a little bit about holiday horror throughout this month. So I want to uh, get Jesse's favorite holiday horror film. Well, so I would say it's a kind of a tie. So my favorite like straight up holiday like horror slasher would be um uh, silent night deadly night it's such a landmark film and is such a gnarly kind of disgusting film <laughs> and and it's kind of psychosexual sub themes uh i always have a good time re-watching it around christmas time and then on the flip side of that, it's not it. There's horror elements to it, but it's definitely straight comedy. Is uh, Scrooged with Bill Murray? I I watch that every year. Same thing. I love that movie. That's what I consider like the all time best Christmas movie. I actually have not seen Scrooged, or at least I don't think. Oh I have. man! Like I feel like maybe I have whenever I was younger, but like haven't actually like watched it. Watched it. But um, intrigued to see it for like you know I can tell it has like just the like the very light horror, uh, touch to it. But um, you know, Scrooge is like one of those like it's one of those stories that it just like does amaze me like how many times it's been told and like the different ways that it can be told 
and yet like mm-hmm. most of them are all pretty good like there's not too ma- i mean yeah there are some really bad ones i won't say there's not bad ones but i'd say for the amount of like scrooge movies out there there's like an overwhelming like um amount of good ones and there's a lot of them that do have horror elements to them as well which i think always oh, lend well to that story yeah yeah it's I, it's a good point you you raised that uh th- that you raised um there's a good ratio of good Scrooge or good Christmas Carol movies to the bad ones. That's always good. I mean, off the top of my head, a bad one, the Jim Carrey one. I think that one's kind of not great, you know, but uh, on the whole, they're, they're pretty good films. I guess that just goes back to how good the original story is. Yeah. Um, but Scrooge is such a great modern retelling. And I think it just goes to, it touches the heart. It touches the heart in such a profound way because the things it does with like, you know, people dealing with the media and dealing with like capitalist kind of pressure, especially around the holidays. I feel like that's every something that all Americans, at the very least, or at least you know, can can uh, identify with. So it's a movie that's literally about if you work too hard, your whole entire life is gonna pass right by you, along with all your loved ones. So watch out. So I, it's a good, it's a perfect holiday movie, I would say. And is and it's that got a, a decent horror flavor to it? Good horror flavor, and isn't that relevant to what's going on today? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. so many of these people that you know the the people that were kind of driven crazy by the quarantine because like they were so used to just like working themselves to death. You know, like kind of kind of a interesting uh the way that movies come back around into relevancy like that and then also on on the uh on the silent night deadly night note um i was going to my original plan for december was i was just gonna do the the silent night deadly night series and i was Mm. just gonna like cover it for the entire month maybe i'll do that for next december um but because i was gonna bring up silent night deadly night 2 because, I mean, yeah, the first one is, like, is pretty good, and it's pretty fun, but, like, <laughs> Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, you get it's Silent... Bonkers. It's bonkers, and you still get Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 1, because so much of the second one is recap from the first one, and you basically get the, the highlights version of it with the goods, but then also you know, narrated but that yeah but then also narrated by Eric Foreman you know <laughs> <laughs> i i think you know what if people were looking to maybe skip one and go right to two maybe it's not such a bad choice i mean considering how crazy the second one ends up being exactly i mean there's there's five movies so if like you need to take a shortcut I, yeah, I totally understand. I would just tell people, like, hey, you can skip the first one, actually. Just just start with the second one. And then, I mean... Oh. Yeah, but the thing is, they do get progressively worse as the series goes along. I mean, by the time we get to the fifth one, we got Mickey Rooney sleepwalking throughout the entire fucking movie. Yeah, but we also get Creepy Puppet Man. And, I mean... We, those, these movies go to some places. Yeah. I think, I think that will be my December for next year. We'll be just covering these lunatic movies. 
if you do it next year, have me on for part five. I want to talk about Mickey Rooney. <laughs> you are on the slate. Yes, it nice. is yours. Um, yeah, Mickey Rooney. Oh, oh, oh. But anyways, um, enough talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night. We will save that for next year. You guys heard it here first. So now let's go ahead and get into our cold vampire movies for today's episode. <laughs> 30 Days of Night, released in 2007, directed by David Slade. It is based off of a 2002 comic book miniseries. Um, It takes place in Alaska, but was shot mainly on hand-built sets in New Zealand. Um, But they did film a little bit of it in Alaska in, like, real snow. Um, There's actually some really cool behind-the-scenes for this film, which I did not um, research enough for the episode. But Jesse is the one that chose 30 Days of Night for today's episode. So what drew you uh, to this movie for this episode? Well, I loved the comic book miniseries uh, when it came out. I, I ate that shit up like crazy. I thought it was, I had never I had never read anything like that. And I was big into comics. I still am big into comics. Um I, I was big into superhero comics and such. I had never read anything quite like that. And so once the film came out, it, it, it became, at least in my community, in my little pocket of fellow high schoolers in Queens, New York, it became such a phenomenon because it came out around the same time that all the girls that the guys were trying to get with were reading Twilight. And we fucking hated Twilight. And so this movie was like an anti-Twilight for us. So we really kind of championed this movie. Went to see. I saw it in the theaters like four or five times when it came out. I was a junior. No, I was a yes, I was a junior in high school. And that year for Halloween, I actually went to Halloween, you know, Halloween parties that year as Marlo, as Danny Houston's character from this film. Um, bought a big old wool coat and everything for it. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was, it, it was a cool costume too. It was a cool costume. Didn't get laid, but Hey, them's the breaks, right? <laughs> but, but so I, I guess that was, a, that was the thing, especially with twilight having co- uh, the books being released at the same time. It was, we were looking for a truly horrific vampire tale. And this was it because, it is, it's so claustrophobic, and it's interesting you brought up that it was filmed mainly on a set. Now, while some people would say that detracts from the film's authenticity, I feel it adds to it, because the mm-hmm. whole point of the comic and the film is this isolation. So the fact that it was made on a very small set drives home that fact even more. David Slade is really good at that. I mean, he did the same thing with Hard Candy, which is another claustrophobic film. Um, so we really, it, that's, that's what always really drew me in about this story, just how claustrophobic it is and how truly frightening it is. It doesn't, the idea that there's going to be no reprieve from this assault mm-hmm. for 30 days, as it says in the title, is so, it gets under my skin. It gets under my skin. And there's so many cool moments. I, I remember, and I, th- I believe they played this in the trailer, you know. 
the moment where Marlo, Danny Houston character, he's eye to eye with the little girl and she's saying, oh, oh God. And he looks up, no God. And that that's fucking badass, man. That's uh, a scary moment. It it really is. So so this was a first time watch for me. I I had eluded this movie, I don't know why. I just or not that I avoided it, I just never got around to it. And man, this is like way better than like I was expecting. I, I don't know, I just kinda went in like pretty like I knew people enjoyed it, but like why wasn't this like huge? Like, because this movie is is really phenomenal. Uh, David Slade. This was um his directorial debut, I believe, because it was right before Hard Candy, I think. And he really, yeah, the the way that they put it together on the set, like, just gave them so much control over it, and really building out the the feel of this town and making it very claustrophobic, and it's i mean it's cold it uh they shot it on 35 millimeter it looks mm-hmm. phenomenal um the the way that you know that the red contrasts off of the uh you know everyone else for the most part is wearing like pretty neutral colored clothing and stuff for except for like a few red coats here and there and then like when the blood hits the snow like the the red really pops off and it it just looks really good but yeah like this was a very like David Slade said he wanted to make a scary vampire a, a very scary vampire movie because like he had felt like there just weren't too many and like when you think about it there had been like we were kind of in that time where like all vampire movies were like kind of subgenres of other horror movies you know so like we weren't getting just like straight scary vampire movies you know at the time so absolutely absolutely and that's and that's i think that's the thing why you know it, it's not like the film wasn't a success you know i was looking it up uh earlier it was made for about 30 million dollars which is not a lot of money for a studio picture it was released by sony uh it made seven seventy five million, so it doubled its money it's not a failure by any means yeah. but i think you know the marketing wasn't there for this movie and i think that people have kind of written it off as just another they think oh it's a it's a regular old b horror movie there's a dime a dozen but i feel like it's it's just waiting for more of a cult following it certainly deserves more of a cult following than it has unless i'm wrong unless there's people online who like really love this film or just aren't talking about it as much but it is it, at a time where the vampire the the vampire idea the vampire mythology was considered antiquated and passe and being used in romance novels or being used in action stories or even in comedies. It was mm-hmm. just kind of too, it wasn't hip enough. You know, zombies were on the rise at this time, if you remember. Yeah. This was a movie that really brought it back to a, a basics kind of a thing and not so less Dracula because Dracula still has that kind of sexy streak through it but mm-hmm. brings it back to more of a Nosferatu level where it's like, no, these are ghouls. These are monsters <laughs> and you should be fucking terrified of them. Yeah. Like that was like the first thing that like really jumped out to me was like, even though these vampires still appeared, you know, human except for their teeth, they still appeared human, but yet they were so animalistic, like with the, the screeches mm-hmm. and, the and speaking in like their like vampire language 
so question, because I think I watched yeah. the weird version. So when you when you watch the movie, do they have subtitles for the vampires' language? If I, because I I watched the film last week in preparation for the podcast, and my version does not, because I have an old DVD copy. Okay, I I was I I I just wasn't sure because like so because then I was I was like googling just like gifs of the movie. And they would have the subtitles of, like, what they were saying in the vampire speech. But then, like, whenever I was watching it, too, it also did not. So now I'm curious if there are versions where they are subtitled. But I'm glad that I had the version that wasn't. Because... Well, it makes... it Like, it, it, I felt like uh, the townspeople, you know? Like I, like, I could grasp what the vampires were saying, but... I at the same time did not know what they're saying or what they truly wanted and that made the experience like scarier so like I'm glad that I didn't have it but then I was just kind of whenever I was googling I could see there were like videos and it would like kind of have their subtitles underneath so I, I wonder know, it's, it's very possible that there is a version maybe even a home release version that subtitles the vampires but I literally just watched the DVD copy. It's a, certainly an old DVD copy, but I literally just watched it last week. There were no subtitles. And thinking back to when I saw it in high school, I don't remember there being subtitles. Okay. I wouldn't want subtitles because I agree with you. It's far, it's far more impactful on the on the viewer and far more grinding at the nerves on the viewer if you don't know exactly what they're saying. If you just get the gist of it. That's far scarier. Exactly. And like and it just like really showed off Danny Houston's acting because Danny Houston's amazing. I absolutely love him. Uh he has one of the most evil faces that you've ever seen and you always know it's bad news when he turns up in a movie. But like this is like finally a movie that like really like showcased just like how scary he is. And in my very light research today, um, I was today years old whenever I realized that he is Angelica Houston's brother. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. He, he is Angelica Houston's brother. Um, I mean, he comes from the uh, a very a long line of Hollywood royalty. I mean, he's John Houston's uh, son. He's mm-hmm. John Houston's son. And he, John Houston, who, as I'm sure you know, you know, he directed... Uh, uh, many classic uh, films from Hollywood's heyday, you know, Maltese Falcon, Treasure, Sierra Madre. So he comes from a, a very rich, artistic and creative uh, family. But yes, he, he does. While that's true, he comes from such a talented family. He does have one of the most evil faces I've ever seen. <laughs> like it's always bad news when he's in a movie and, and always yeah. and i think that just like also like uh speaks to how much of a queen angelica houston is that like obviously like i think of her first and then it's like oh danny is her brother cool danny is her brother not the other way around you know Right. Well, I mean, I mean, look who we're talking about. I mean, it's Angelica Houston. Here. Exactly. So Come I just on. Thought, so I just thought that was funny. But uh, Danny Houston is a fantastic character actor. I just I do love like anything that he appears in. And uh, he just uh, he really does um, show his chops literally and figuratively in this film. 
So yes. let's go ahead and talk some subgenre stuff. We're going to get into uh, throwing the movie into the genre grinder, which is where we're already talking, you know, subgenre stuff here on the Blade Blunt Cinema Club, but we're going to break it down even finer because obviously the, the winter elements do play a big factor into this movie, uh, you know, thus going into our cold horror category. But of course, it is a vampire flick. But then the big subgenre that kind of stood off stood out to me is this is also a western. This is a vampire hmm. this is a vampire northwestern survival movie where you kind of have, you know, this small town everyone knows each other and you know you don't exactly take the time to get to know all the townspeople however you understand the the relationships that they have amongst each other so it's like you already so you do know that they know each other and then of course um guarding the the town is the righteous sheriff who you know just wants to save everybody make sure you know and protect he's he's the the protector and of course, you know he literally has a standoff at the end of the movie with uh, the vampire gang whenever the their town is in literal flames. So it's like it's a it's a very cold vampire western in a way as well. What are uh, some subgenre stuff that uh, stick out to you? Maybe. Well, I was say this very interesting observation is kind of like Rifleman, but with vampires. This is very interesting. I'm not sure if I've ever even considered that before, but it's true. Like you were saying, it's it's a it's a it's a small town sheriff protecting his people from an onslaught. It just happens to be supernatural in this case. Um, other subgenres that that jump out. I mean, there's certainly an air of zombie to it, an mm-hmm. air of the zombie genre, because it is, uh, because they act so animalistic, you know, that's the one thing about third days of night that sets it apart is that the vampire traditionally is a very vocal opponent in a horror film here. They are not, mm-hmm. uh, at least not towards the humans. So there's a, a streak of zombiness, although they're not mindless, so it's it's perhaps even a subgenre within a subgenre in a way, right? Yeah, I I would I would definitely agree. Um, in the back half of watching the movie, um, my roommate's brother came in and he was like, "Hey, what's this?" And I was like, Thirty Days Night." He goes, "Oh, is it a zombie movie?" Just because of like what he was seeing on screen. So you're uh, very well, right sure. in that observation yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly in the way that it's shot and the way in which not so much how not so much the way in which the vampires attack because it is clearly calculated, but I guess the how, you know, the biting and the mauling, Mm -hmm. it is very zombie-esque. It's not simply just show up in your bedroom and bite the jugular vein. You know, it's savage and that sticks more with the with the uh with the zombie genre i was wondering if part of it of part of the another subgenre could be almost a cabin in the woods-esque like you know what i'm talking about that we're isolated we can't get out kind of a deal you know it, i kind of i get a a similar vibe that well i guess um or there was a remake that came out after this but the i get shades of uh kind of the crazies um, with this movie, um, kind of in that in that small town like isolation horror, 
I guess would be okay. like the the subgenre I'm going for here. Yeah, like small town isolation because that is like a very like simple thing and and that's the and this movie is very simple as well. It's it's literally it's just these townsfolk and it is like, you know, the ultimate setup for a vampire movie where you have this town that goes under 30 days of constant night pretty much because they have no sun or anything. So it's like, oh yeah, duh, vampires. This makes total sense. And it's very simple. The vampires just come in and they take over the town and eat it to death, you know, and, and then set it well, on fire. <laughs> well, that's the thing. The The best ideas are always the simplest. The best ideas are always the ones where it's like, okay, this works and we don't, this works just on its own. It stands on its legs without any help. And we don't need to do a damn thing to make it more interesting. Like we're already there. That's a perfect, that's a perfect idea. That's a perfect plot. It really is. This is is a perfect horror movie plot. Yeah. And it's, it's executed very well there. We have great performances. We already mentioned Danny Houston, but of course we have the lead Josh Hartnett, which who is fantastic is as a very believable the small town sheriff like you know and i maybe that's the reason that a lot of people don't talk about this movie as much is that i would say this is like people a lot of people would see it more as a like pretty good movie like because if you're not a like it like maybe if like you're not looking for vampire movies or like this is exactly your movie you would still watch this and go yeah it's pretty good you know like it doesn't it's not flashy i guess in the sense it's certainly not flashy it's certainly not flashy in a, in that way it's kind of accessible to all like this is a good i always recommend this to people say hey i'm not really into horror but i'm looking for a, a good little horror kick for halloween season i always recommend hmm. 30 days a night because it's like in and out we don't spend too much time the concepts aren't over the head and it gives people exactly what they expect out of a horror movie, which is exactly, uh, which is exactly the reason why this movie works. I feel, and I guess also, you you mentioned Josh Hartnett. Yeah, there's not a, a lot of huge stars in this movie. There's a lot of character actors, mm. a lot of stars who are character actors, but certainly no big like Tom Cruise in Thirty Days a Night. You know, there's nothing like that. But there's certainly a lot of people in this movie that are familiar faces like, oh, hey, yeah, I know this guy. He's on TV. He's on Breaking Bad or whatever it might be, you know, like uh, like Ben, like Ben Foster as a stranger. Great character. Great performance. Oh, man. You know, Ben Foster. So good. I love Ben Foster in this. He had. He's so good. Uh, he has my my favorite. I mean, he has a lot of my favorite lines, but um, w- the one of them when he's sitting at the diner and says, "Now what's wrong with a man wanting a little fresh meat?" And I was like, "Ooh, there's something really like sinister and haunting about that." But then also like, still kind of like a human thought, but also not a human thought. So like, kind of giving us that little hint of you know something something weird's going on. And I always love right. And and there we go. There's another Western trope. A stranger walks into town. How did he get here? Sure. Who is he? And what is it? What are his intentions? You know, another Western right, exactly. trope. Right. Exactly. Interesting. He's like he's he's that. the harbinger. He's the harbinger of this all. And if you really want to, if you want to really bring it back to the heart of the vampire genre, he's Renfield. Yeah. He's 100 percent Renfield to Marlowe's Dracula. 
Yes, he is. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, the weaving. But uh, it's like, see, I love how it's like they 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 wrote enough into where we could put that together. But it's also like you know they're not trying to you know do it explicitly. You know, again, like just very straightforward, very simple. Um, which mm-hmm. I do enjoy. I do enjoy the aesthetics of the film as well. You know, it does have very good production value with a combination of practical and CGI effects, which I think is always the best. Like, I know a lot of people will are always say practical effects forever, you know. Like, I always, and like, yeah, because bad CGI can be bad versus like, I would say bad practical effects are still like sometimes good, you know. But I think, like, when we have access to certain technologies, like, yeah, I'm cool with, like, doing the practical effects and then enhancing it with the CGI like they did with the snow. They had, you know, simulated snow when they were shooting, but then they would enhance it with the CGI snow, which kind of gave it this, like, supernatural look to it with uh, some of these, like, really great shots of, you know, the scenicness, but then also... You know, a lot of those scenic shots were also digitally, like, altered as well or enhanced with what they built. So it's like when you use them together, I think that's when you do get some of, like, the best results. Like uh, something like in uh, Splice is another great example of, like, merging the two of them and, like, working really well together. Well, it's certainly about finding that balance. And like like you said, the CGI used in this film in 30 Days and Nights was enhancement. Um, because they probably couldn't do a whole lot of practical effects, but the ones that they could do, they could enhance and make them look even better. That's the right use uh, for, of CGI in, in a horror picture, I believe. Yeah, for sure. Like, exactly. Like, just, you know, have a good foundation and then, yeah, just use it to enhance, which I think they um, did very well. So just to get in uh, before we close out to get to a couple of our favorite scenes in the film, um, there's, there's a lot of great things to work with here. There's, uh, some really great, um, attack scenes whenever they're kind of a little bit more mysterious before we know what's going on. And then we have a full on, like the, the, it's a tie for me between the overhead shot of like the vampires ravaging the town, like when they like really decimate it. But then I also love me a final showdown where it's just good old vampire fisticuffs. So, like, what's, yeah. one, of, what's uh, one of your favorite scenes? Well, I mentioned uh, before the scene where uh, Marlo, Danny Houston's character, go, no God. That's probably easily my favorite scene mm-hmm. in the film. But another one that's always stuck with me, um, had a real impact on me, is something I still think about when someone says this movie, it's one of the first scenes that comes to mind, um, is the scene where the assault is first first occurring – the assault on the town and uh, husband and wife are in the kitchen trying to, you know, wake this out, you know, board things up. Vampire busts through. If you remember this scene, grabs the wife and he's pulling her in between the homes. He's literally dragging her mm-hmm. with such strength and the husband can do nothing but watch. It is that one is really that one stands out to me so much because there's such strength in that there's such you can't come combat that kind of strength. Yeah. And like, that's kind of another thing that I really liked about their depiction of the vampire. It's like, 
you know, they didn't have to have them, like, flying around and, like, doing, like, a bunch of craziness and, like, throwing cars or anything, but yet they still, like, demonstrated, like, how violent and, like, how much stronger they are than, like, everyone else, because you can, like, see the, the humans kind of putting up a fight for a minute, but then they just get overwhelmed because, like, yeah, it's just, like, this intense strength that they, like, really can't handle, and yeah, so, like, the town, the town onslaught is just, like, really just like crazy like it's just like i love how it's just this like casual camera pan as all this like madness is going on and then it goes up into the overhead shot and it, you just see it as like oh man this town is fucked like they're so fucked yeah you know yeah and then i wanted to bring this scene up as well because this was one that was played in the trailer uh quite often uh in the tv trailers was to see where marlo that him and his fellow vampires have just laid waste to this husband and wife, to this family. And Marlo casually walks over to the, to the record player, spins it, throws his nasty, long, sharp fingernail on it. And the music's playing and he lets out a guttural scream. It's kind of like, at first when I saw that, I was like, does he not understand what this is? I was like, no, he knows what this record player that he is. He is playing with the objects, the material objects of humanity, because he sees everything that humanity is from the actual humans to their material possessions as playthings. So that, that was another moment that was really kind of like, wow, the, the, these, these villains mean business. There is, there is no remorse in these, these villains. You, you will not be able to, parlay with these villains you will have to fight them you will have to bring the fight to them because they do not care it's like they don't care and they also just like know that there is no like that there's nothing i can do and then also in that moment because i was like think about it because yeah it is a really creepy scene but i'm also thinking about it so if he's doing it with his nail is the music technically coming out of his mouth when he like, because he he's holding his mouth open, so is the music technically coming out of him? And then the like, he starts doing the screech like on top of it. Don't quote me on this because I'm not 100 percent <laughs> sure exactly. You know, my 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 younger brother is the audio guy, so he'd be able to tell me exactly <laughs> how a turntable works. But I've always read that scene as uh, no, the music's coming from his mouth. Yeah. And he is screeching on top of it. Yeah. He is making ugly what humans find pretty. With that's how I read that's how I view that scene. If I'm wrong, if that's not how record players work, well, oh well. It's still I think it's still a better interpretation. <laughs> no, I, I think we're I think we are correct here. We're just gonna go ahead and say that we're correct because that's I, like I'm I was, down with that. Because obviously me watching this like super stoned and he did that and, and that's literally the first thing I thought of. I go, Oh my god, he's we have a vampire playing music through a record player out of his throat. Like that is hilarious and amazing. Uh absolutely loved it. Speaking of music um, have to give a shout out to Brian Ratzel on the score. He is a frequent uh, collaborator for Sofia Coppola and scores a lot of her films. And uh, he did some really interesting stuff with the music here, like whenever he would time drum beats to the action. And then there's this one scene. It's uh, when Eben 
and Stella are like looking around and like they can't see like what's going on. They're like, you know, starting to realize like it's like right before they get attacked for the first time. And it's just like she like looks through her binoculars and when she says like we have to go, it hits this violin note and it slides down and it's like and it's like a like thirty second note and it's so cool. Uh the score is uh really, really great. It's a wonderful score. It's absolutely wonderful. It really sets the mood in a profound way. It sets the right kind of atmosphere. That's a thing that, you know, people forget how important uh, music and soundtrack is to a horror film, mm-hmm. especially film horror films of the mid-2000s of this era that were lacking in soundtrack. 30 Days of Nights really, get, um, really gets it right. Yes, I will. I will definitely agree. That is one thing that is missing from a lot of 2000s horror is like they kind of were relying a lot more on the licensed music at the time and then like when you get a good film like this with just like a good classic horror score to it and um yeah it really really is the backbone great sound design too with all the the walking in the snow and the you know blood dripping and like when people get attacked a uh, great sound design as well and then, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't even really talk. There is some character stuff here, you know, like, of course, there's great vampire stuff, but um, there is, you know, a little bit of character drama with Ebba, with Eben and Stella and, you know, them kind of going through their things. And then you have the brotherly relationship as well. Like there is some character stuff that actually makes the uh, final standoff have some weight to it. Oh, of course. And there, there's also, I mean, even the smaller side characters of the town, a lot of them are archetypes, but they're the archetypes that we'd like to see. You know, there was one that really stood out to me was Mark Mark Boone Jr.'s character, Bo Brower. Mm-hmm. Um, that hit him, you know, he's your typical gruff, like, I don't give a fuck about anybody in this town. I just care about me. But then halfway through the assault, he really comes through. And then suddenly, okay, we're now rooting for this guy as well. Like we were waiting for this heroic turn for this character development. So little things like that, they all really drive home. They, they make it, they make it a very satisfying movie watching experience, but they really drive home the fact that these people are coming together and developing so that they can uh, react appropriately to this assault. Yeah. So they could try and survive. Yeah, they definitely do hit the uh the the supporting characters with uh some great beats as well and like and great with Mark Boone Jr because like he is also one of those guys like typically when he appears in a movie, he's a piece of shit. But in this movie, mm-hmm. he gets to he gets to be the hero, which is a nice he- subversion for him as an actor. I'm sure he enjoyed that. <laughs> I, w- I would hope so, yeah, and he does a great job of it. He really does, you know? Yeah, and then, uh, and then of course, in, you know, when you have the sheriff archetype who decides to make the sacrifice for his town, we get that, and Josh Hartnett injects some vampire blood into himself so he can go toe-to-toe with Marlowe and, you know, distract them enough so that way, you know, he can get the gang to go away and um it's uh and it it works really well like josh hartnett you know like just is very straightforward in his performance but like very like relatable you know as well and um for sure isn't that heart isn't that heartbreaking that that you know that moment where he realizes and the viewers collectively realize oh no there's only one thing that we can do 
There's only one thing this sheriff can do is to literally sacrifice himself. And it all culminating in that scene uh, between him and Stella where, you know, she's she's holding on to him as the sun rises. It's heartbreaking, man. Like you're really pulling at the heartstrings here. Like a really great scene. I love that. Like they wait for Eben and Stella to kiss the entire movie until that moment when he's like, you know, yeah. not human anymore and has sacrificed himself. And then we finally get the kiss that we were waiting for. I love that uh, they they took their time with that and uh, fantastic scene. But um, but yeah, for my first time watch, I was uh, very impressed with this movie. Uh, enjoyed it very much. Is this a movie you think you're going to revisit, you know, maybe next winter time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is definitely going to be a movie um, to revisit. Right on. Right on. Our next movie on the docket is Let the Right One In, which came out a year later in 2008. This is a Swedish film directed by Thomas Alfredson, based off of the book by John Ajvid Lindvist. Oof, that's a tough one. I think think you did a good job with the name. Looking through the names of the people attached to this movie and the book, it just sounds like a bunch of hockey players to me. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Right, Uh, but I think you did a good job. I wish I as could... long as you can get first names, I mean, shit, I, that's all they can ask us at this point. <laughs> that is that is very true. I wish I could pronounce them because I am a quarter Swedish, but um, I, oh. I could not salt with my grandmother to ask her how to <laughs> pronounce these. So I did the best I could. But this is a um, very great vampire flick as well. It's very cold, takes place in the wintertime as well, and it is the story of uh, Oscar, a young boy who befriends a, um, a, a vampire. Um, there are a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, themes and layers within this film, uh, tackling, you know, um, we'll get into the genre grinder for this one a little early. Um, where we have, you know, it's a vampire flick, but it's mainly a coming-of-age film, uh, kind of focusing on the friendship between these two characters and the the love and bond that they develop for each other, while also tackling, you know, um, you know, personality things and you know what who what makes someone a monster, you know, and it's a very very like small tender movie but then it's like intercut with these like bursts of violence. Um, it's a, a very good film. Um, it did get an American remake, which I still have not watched yet, but I hear the American remake is also pretty good. Um, but what is your, it's not, um, it's not bad. It's it, the, I was, I'm sorry for cutting you off. I was going to say the American remake is not, not that bad. It's, it's not terrible. Um, it had a hell of a time following up this movie because let the right one in, uh, was another movie that when I first saw it, I was floored by. I this was phenomenal. This is a great movie. Yeah, the the very first time I watched it, it was a few years ago, and I like, I mean, I cried. Like it was like one of those ones that it just like I was like, man, there's just something so emotionally raw about it. Yeah, and like kind of the like I said, it like has this like you know the the juxtaposition of like it being set in the winter time and it's cold and then you know with the theory of vampires kind of being like cold-blooded and like 
undead to a degree, but yet there's this warmth and tenderness like throughout the film um, that I really enjoy. And so it's like, you know, going right into the film, they kind of like set the tone, you know, with it, just this quiet credit scene. There's like nothing. And then all of a sudden you just like kind of hear the wind start creeping in and then the snow creeps in and it's like such as like a like beautiful intro like right into the coldness of this film yes well you know and i feel like rather unlike 30 days night where winter time and coldness is a very integral part of the film not to say that it's not integral here it's just used in a different way it's the 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 snow motif and the winter motifs are really almost metaphors for like you had mentioned, you know, vampires being undead, being, being cold blooded. And yet there's a warmth there to it, uh, a tenderness there to, to the vampire uh, mythology. That's really kind of defying expectations. You know, there's a, a friendship, a romance, uh, a coming, these people are growing and, Mm -hmm. and our specifically our main character, Oscar, he is growing in many different ways, he is blooming against all odds. He is blooming. His his relationship with this vampire is blooming against all odds. He is finding himself in a very oppressive community, a very oppressive physical, physically because of the winter, because of the snow, and emotionally and mentally because of the bullying he experiences. You know, so it's all kind of weaving together to create this metaphor of things blooming when it seems impossible for them to bloom. Yeah. Like very much so, like you said there's like all this all these things like kind of oppressing on Oscar, you know, kind of like you could, how you would think of, you know, in the winter time the the snow and the cold is kind of holding, you know, plants from from growing. And so yeah, there de- there definitely is like the metaphor and like, you know, roping in the setting a little bit. But um, but the the relationship between Oscar and uh, Eli is is very just like it's very fascinating because it's like it's you know it just it feels so vulnerable and real because they're like you know they're very awkward at first like it's kind of one of those things like I mean they don't even like introduce each other's names like the first time that they meet and it's just like you know the way that you kind of see them developing together and then you know yeah and it's and it's you know i see it it's like because there is definitely the romance angle to it but then i saw like this also like kind of weird parallel in like the portrayal of the of eli of eli as a vampire is like kind of kind of like a like a dog you know like the way that they lap up blood off the floor and like kind of like get on all fours and like kind of make these like growling sounds and like how the cats don't like them, you know, there's this weird Mm. thing there where there's kind of this like owner pet dynamic because you have that, but it's flipped in the way you wouldn't think it is where it's like Eli has um, their human caretaker that, you know, kills for them. So they don't have to kill and are able to drink blood that way. So it's like, you know, where uh, Hakan is like her uh, is like their pet in in a way. So it's like a weird dynamic there, too. 
and then so it's like it, which made me like think towards the end of the movie i'm like you know we ha- we see that oscar and you like have like a happy ending but then I'm like, but is Oscar now just going to be the new Hakan or has Eli actually grown as, you know, the, a person as well, you know? So it's very interesting. Well, you see, that's, it is very interesting. And you see, that's, that's the real, that's the real sadness of the movie is that, you know, you're left wondering is, has there, like you said, has there been growth here and will, will the relationship between Eli and Oscar be different than Eli's relationship with Hakan? Uh, will it be different or will it be the same? And if it's the same, what does that mean for Oscar? Is he going to be to be just like Hakan? Because, and I don't know if you've if you've ever read the novel. This is only hinted at hinted rather sorry at in the in the film. But Hakan is a is using Eli for sex. Hakan is a pedophile. Oh so, yeah, which I is, did hear that. I hadn't read the book, but I had yeah. heard that. Uh. Right, and that's and that's only hinted at. That's only hinted at in the mm. film. Now, with that knowledge, and I think the hints are pretty strong. So this is not even just uh, um, uh, uh, putting details from the book and ascribing them to the film unnecessarily. I think the hints are decently strong. So given that, you know, what does that mean for the trajectory of Oscar's life if the if Eli hasn't grown? What is what is Oscar going to be like in old age? Mm-hmm. You know, which is which is a, is, is a conflict. That's a huge conflict. Um, I have a there's actually there's a number huh. of things uh, uh, that are a lot of working pieces to the relationship that mm-hmm. that that make the film really 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 fascinating in the way that it plays with with character and the way it plays with its themes especially it's more it's more queer themes i really would love to 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 start talking about some of that oh yes that's where i was definitely going next is there are just very strong queer and gender themes within the film and you know with the um you know androgynous non-binary esque depiction of Eli to a degree and then they do you know very much just like go straight for it in the scene and the way of interacting it with like a 10 year old boy you know made for a very interesting dynamic because you do forget in your brain that you know Eli is also older than you know we actually think you know they aren't you know Maybe physically they are that age still, but, you know, most likely Eli is older than that, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, easily as as old as any vampire uh, can be, you know, uh, given given uh, given the nature of the character uh, of the of the vampire character in and of itself. You know, I know that in the backstory of Eli, there was. He, he was under the ser- under the control or servitude of a vampire nobleman who was said to be centuries old himself so there's there's certainly centuries oh. uh to 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 Eli's age so that's a that's a weird dynamic in and of itself like you said because Eli is engaging in a relationship now with Oscar and Oscar being how old he is being of proper age. I believe he is 12 in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
what kind of relationship is this? Now, if we're taking it literally, it's it certainly has the optics are not great, yeah. <laughs> you know, if we're taking it literally. But but I think it would be a disservice to the film and to the story to take it so literally and maybe look for the metaphorical. You know, uh, the vampires certainly had a, a history of of queer elements and the horror genre in and of itself has had a history of queer elements in it where it's really not so much about the literal, but it's about what's hiding underneath, you know, mm-hmm. the term monsters in the closet and such. Yeah, because it's it's definitely because, yeah, it, it doesn't look great, of course, like you said, but you can also look at it in the I guess we could also look at it in the angle that, you know, Eli does have this like, you know wealth of you know kind of you know human wisdom of you know of just observing and you know seeing things for the way they are and you know a lot of there are so many like you know toxic masculine elements going on with like the oppression that oscar faces from his bullies and it's you know very much like they're always showing just like these interactions like of how random and you know physical the bullying is between just boys you know, and then the idea of, you know, boys being boys, and that's why Oscar has never, you know, been able to deal with it. But then also where Oscar is learning from Eli, from someone who is not necessarily a man, but also not necessarily a woman, as we, as, you know, Eli puts it. Right, right, which, which is, was kind of, it's kind of, Eli, Eli opens opens up Oscar to a whole nother world, a world where a world where he seems more comfortable, a world where he can be more comfortable, a world that is a little, a, a world that is free from the toxic masculinity that he faces from his classmates, a mm-hmm. world where he doesn't have to worry about that as much, and I think that's why he's so drawn to Eli because of Eli's uh, ambiguity. Yeah. Because he himself feels that same ambiguity. He doesn't feel he doesn't quite fit in with the other with the other boys. You know, he doesn't quite fit in with this world, um, with this normal society, as it were, quote unquote. So I think that's the big thing about Eli in his life is that Eli opens up the possibilities. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because it's kind of, like you said, it's like the, with the ambiguity of it all. And, you know, where now, I guess now when we get like to the end of it, it's like, you know, we have this like new, new possibility for Oscar, you know, because at first he was, you know, okay with, you know, having his little crush on Eli because when he thought Eli was a girl, but then when they kind of have that exchange of like, you know, well, do you still like me if, even if I'm not? you know and then Eli kind of you know coming to understand that you know because he just when he realizes that Eli has you know the feelings for him and that his feelings back are okay regardless you know so it's it's uh it's very it's a very beautiful relationship between them though and like so well acted um the scene when they're absolutely like, like the scene where they're laying down and like eli like kind of traces oscar's arm and then just holds his hand is like such like a like i don't know like it, it's such a powerful moment and like just like the the exchanges between them and like the way that develops and then like and then the the final at the end where they kind of have 
their little Morse code when they're on the train, you know. And I never knew the first time that I watched it what the the Morse code was that it was kiss. And then when oh yeah, uh, when Oscar taps back, he says small kiss back. I didn't know that the first time around. And then when I realized that, I was like, oh. Well, the, it, it, it does, again, it pulls at the heartstrings. I said that before with Dirty Days and Night. You know, there there's moments in and uh, many moments in this film and Let the Right One In that tug at the heartstrings. And there's there's a beautiful kind of childlike innocence to the romance that blooms between Oscar and Eli. You know, we were talking about development of Eli. Like, is Eli really growing? I think the fact that the romance is blooming, we might have answered our own question here. I think the romance that I think the fact that the romance is blooming in general between Eli and Oscar, that Eli is admitting that they have feelings for Oscar. I think that is character growth because the relationship Eli has with Hakan is really just of convenience and it's a one-sided power hierarchy. Even like you had said that Hakan is really more of a, of a pet. I always read that relationship as a unfortunate reality that many uh, queer LGBT plus youths go through where it's the young, the young queer person in a relationship as it were. It's not even really a relationship, but Mm -hmm. more of a physical relationship uh, unequal power dynamic with an older queer person it's a very unfortunate reality for many lgbtq plus youths yeah. um and so it, and it's very toxic and i believe and i've always read that relationship as toxic that as much as hakan is uh beholden to eli eli is just as beholden to hakan and so the relationship that blooms between oscar and eli is much is is far more honest and far more sincere yeah and rooted in actual feelings and and actual caring actual empathy yeah and i think it's i think it's weird because like i didn't realize like i this the second time around or this most recent time around watching like is why i kind of did pick up on the the creepier and like the insinuations more that Hakan was like a pedo you know because like the first time I watched it I didn't really read it as much and then I I just saw it Mm -hmm. as like this like weird like I don't know like kind of like worshipping kind of like I said like kind of relationship to a degree but but then kind of yeah like seeing seeing a little bit more of the clues this more time around and then with that being, you know, the reason that Eli is more guarded with Oscar and then is, you know, eventually, you know, grows a little bit more. But right. Yeah. So it's uh there's there's a lot going on in this movie, but it's also like it's another one of those movies. It's like there's a lot going on, but yet it's a very like, you know, quiet movie. Like this is a very this is a very moody movie. You know, this is a you drink some hot tea while you watch it movie and um it's a it's a really i i love you know as much as i do like you know the the classic vampires like of the of um you know i i like the 30 day of night ones where we get scary vampires and then i do like like typical sexy vampires as well but my favorite vampire movies are the more like more 
I don't know, I call them alternative vampire movies, like mm-hmm. kind of like this or a movie even like uh, The Transfiguration or, you know, okay. something like that where it's like you have these like very alternative vampire stories, uh, like a girl walks well, alone sure. at night even kind of fits into that. Right, well, basically a vampire story that is a vampire story because the vampire story can facilitate the development of a different kind of a story it's kind of being used to enhance something different in this case a coming of age romance i can dig it yeah yes that's exactly where i was trying to get at um those are yeah these those are my favorite kind of vampire movies um so yeah that's that's why this is another one of my favorites but thank you though for um uh requesting 30 days a night because that was a very uh, fun first-time watch, so I appreciate you bringing that movie, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Of course, uh, thank you for having me. You know, I, do, I love being on. I love being on horror podcasts. I love uh, being able to chit chat with with other people in the in the horror community. You know, we're a we're a tight knit community. We're we're kind of a niche community, so gotta stick together, man. Yeah, and and like we said, like especially very, during winter, it's cold. It's cold out there. <laughs> it's cold. People get lonely. They get sad. And yes, you gotta have the horror homies around. And uh, that is why another thing that I love about doing this podcast is getting to uh, get to know people in the community a little bit better and getting to meet new people. So, uh, thanks once again. And uh, where can the the people find you? Well, you can find me at Twitter at Jesse Berberich, B-E-R-B-E-R-I-C-H. You can find me on Instagram at MonsterKid underscore. And you can find my articles, my editorials at SomethingGoolish.com. Yes, yes. Uh, make sure you guys go stalk those social medias. And you know we love to show the Something Ghoulish gang fam um, some love. So make sure you guys um, go read up on some of those editorials. But that will go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Join us next week as we chat with director Chris Peckover with his um, Christmas feature, Better Watch Out, one of my all-time favorites. Make sure you guys follow the Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco and Bloody Blunt CC on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>